great. So thank you all so much for coming out tonight and joining us on this rainy evening. Um, we are thrilled to have a nurse, humanitarian aid worker, and award-winning author with us tonight. So please join me in welcoming Roberta Gailey. Thank you. So uh, first I have to ask, is everybody here because Maggie told them to come? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Maggie. <laughs> Sit in front. It's like being in school when you were little, right? And you were the last one in. So my name is Roberta Gately. I'm a nurse um, from Boston. I'm a humanitarian aid worker. Um, and I'm also a writer, and I'm here to talk about my latest book, but all of my books and the real story behind those books. Um, Maggie invited me, and I was at her book club a few months ago. Um, I, I'll try not to go through this for too long a time. I think the pictures and the stories are pretty interesting. But please feel free at the end to ask questions, and people always have questions. Um, so I'm a nurse and an aid worker. Um, so as we sit here tonight, when we were at Maggie's house um, last spring or winter, there was a terrible rainstorm, and the power went out. Um, and I said it's almost it's a great um, it's great to be without power because then it makes the book and the stories more real. But the truth of it is, tonight it's raining. We have flush toilets down the hall. We have electricity that we can dim. We have comfortable seats. We have a camera guy in the back. I have electricity for this. Most people around the world don't live this way. Most people live without electricity and water. Um, there's at least 67 million people who are refugees or displaced around the world. And because of all of the political strife in our own country, it's never on the news. We don't hear about Yemen and the Congo and Sudan um, and Darfur and Ethiopia and all the crisis regions that still continue. It's as though they don't exist for the news organizations. So it's hard if you want to find out about them. Um, so the first time I went away, so the, the ba real backstory is when I was a little girl, um, I think it was Life magazine, I saw um, really glossy pictures of refugees in some godforsaken place, I don't even remember where it was, and they were stick-thin kids, um, and it always stuck with me, I think it's part of the reason why I went to nursing school, I wanted to do something. Um, but you graduate from school, you get an apartment, a cool job, you start dating cool guys, um, and you forget about it for a couple of years. Um, but in 1986, I was working in the ER in Boston City, came home from work, um, turned on my air conditioner, sat on my comfortable couch, clicked on my television, and there was a story about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the refugees who were living along the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. And the pictures in the story were awful. Um, when they showed the stories and said they needed medical help, I knew that I would go, and I picked up the phone. People, my friends, family thought I was crazy. Um, and within a short time, I was on my way. And this is, this is a typical village in Afghanistan. This actually has been strafed by Taliban bombs, but that's a pretty typical village. Um, it's a country that's often in the rural areas without electricity, running water, without schools. Um, it's always on the brink of disaster. They live in these crumbling mud homes, the only good thing about them is that they're fairly easy to rebuild. Um, and this is the typical landscape. There's very few paved roads. You can see there's no power lines. Um, and when we went to clinics, these are the kinds of roads we would take. Um, so 30 years ago, I went, I mean, I think it's four trips in the book. 
I'm getting older, I forget. Um, but it was the direst of circumstances because around the world, very few people read about it um, or heard, heard about it or even really cared about it. But the situation was um, just miserable. People were starving. Um, we could provide basic medical care, but not much else. In those days, um, for starving kids, we didn't have any malnutrition programs, so we couldn't even offer food unless we bought it with our own money, which we often tried to do. The work was horrific, um, but it was the best work I'd ever done in my life, and I was hooked. Um, aid work became like a drug for me. Um, there was nothing better than going to some spot like this and living in a tent like that. Um, and I never have, I've never slept better than when I lived that way, and I know that seems odd. Um, and Taliban, once the Soviets left, um, Afghanistan settled down for a little bit, the Northern Alliance took over, things looked like it would be okay. It was off our radar. And then in 96, the Taliban took over, and it was really off our radar because the Taliban wouldn't let um, Westerners in. We didn't know what happened there, and it was only until 9-11 when it really came back on the news that we saw the misery of that place. Um, and it really does continue today, and with the resurgence of the Taliban, it will probably continue further. Um, in Afghanistan, even now, one in four children will not live to see his fifth birthday. And, and they die of simple diseases, respiratory problems, diarrhea, um, vaccine-preventable diseases. In a place like Afghanistan, if one kid gets measles, it spreads like wildfire. It's like um, striking a, a match in a forest. It's um, just dire. For the kids, there isn't much for them to do. There were no schools. Um, as soon as they could walk, they had to work and help with the family. These were two kids getting water from a, a cold stream. The water is provided by the snow runoff from the mountains. Um, so these poor kids, by the time they get home with those plastic jerry cans filled with water, you can see half of it has sloshed out, and they have to go back again. Um, for girls, the same thing. These were girls who went to the market, the little girl holding the flower, and the other little girl picked potatoes in the field. So everybody works. Um, but for kids, there isn't much to do aside from chores. This is the landscape. Um, and it's one thing that people always mention when they see the pictures is um, that everybody is, is dirty and covered with dirt. And it's hard to wash. The water, um, the runoff from the mountains and the streams is really cold. Um, for us in our little compound, we would have to heat it um, in a big urn, you know, get kindling, set it on fire, wait for the water to get warm. Um, it really wasn't worth it. So after a while, I looked like that too. And I didn't, and actually, I didn't mind. Um, for women, the, the statistics and the problems um, were actually even worse than for the children because in places like Afghanistan, women come last. They're the last to be fed, the last to be taken care of, the last to be listened to. Um, and it isn't just Afghanistan, but in Afghanistan, it was especially miserable. Um, under the Taliban, it was really bad. They weren't allowed to take jobs. They weren't allowed to go outside of their house without a man. Um, they couldn't see medical doctors unless it was a woman, but they didn't allow women to work, so they had them in this catch-99 um, position. They couldn't get medical care. Who would they get it from? Um, as a result, um, when I got there right after 9-11, 
um, UNICEF reported that every 20 minutes a woman died from a pregnancy or childbirth related complication. And although that's an awful statistic, it's actually worse to see it in real life, to, to be in a clinic and have a woman give birth and then bleed to death in front of you when we had no transfusion capabilities. It was, yeah, it's really just miserable. Um, we did help to improve things. Um, today it's improved to every two hours, but again, the Taliban um, are coming back stronger than ever, and I think that that will change again, and they'll be off our radar again. Um, and the thing about Afghanistan is the people really are very, very kind. They would give me the last of their food, and I wouldn't want to take it, but I had to because it's an insult to turn it down. Um, when I was in Afghanistan after 9-11, I worked with Medicines on Frontier, Doctors Without Borders, um, and we ran um, a clinic, which was the little whitewashed plaster building to the left, and a little 18-bed hospital to the right. And we could only admit for basic things. We could do some IV treatment, um, and we did have some IV antibiotics, but we had to guess at bacteria and guess at susceptibility. Could, would this um, antibiotic work for this? Um, but we still tried, and um, I think we made a difference with some people. We also, this was the best part, we ran mobile clinics, and we went out in um, Land Rovers and drove as far as we could and then trekked up the mountains with backpacks or trunks full of medicine and saw people. And in this world without communication, without electricity, without telephones to say that we were coming, everybody knew when we were going to show up. We often didn't know until that morning what village we would stop at, but people somehow knew. They came on foot and on donkeys, and they waited to be seen, and they waited for hours. Um, I think part of the, the reason, especially the kids, are smiling is because this was a chance for them to play and have a few hours of respite from their own chores. So the kids enjoyed it. They also got to see a foreigner walking around. Um, we didn't have a, a system like we have here um, to do real triage, so we would do, I always called it a drive-by triage. I'd kind of look around and see who was sick and who I should see first. And my habit was, and I've done this everywhere, let me go back, is to see the women first, because around the world it's women who are the last ones seen, um, always. So in Afghanistan I actually got into a little trouble. Um, thank God the village elders didn't go to MSF. Um, but I always see women first, and I'm a woman, and it's my clinic, so that's what I'm going to do. Um, and I would tell the men, we'll see you, and if you're sick, I'll see you first. Um, but we're always going to see women first, and they would grumble, and then some of them complained to some village elders, and I had to go meet with them and um, suck up to them a little. But then they let me continue seeing women first, so I won. <laughs> um, one of the hardest things to see is the malnourished babies. And there are more of these than you can imagine around the world. And I know it's hard to look at. Um, but these babies, in the last 20 years now, we have therapeutic feeding programs for them. And a baby like this, we could admit into our little hospital, give them IVs if they needed it. They often had other diseases um, compounded by their malnutrition, diarrhea, vaccine diseases, respiratory infections. Um, so we would admit them, take care of them. Some kids we'd have come back every couple of days. Um, this is a little one we admitted. Um, if we had trouble getting them to take food by mouth, we'd put in, in G-tubes and feed them. 
Um, and some of them improved. That's this little baby. Um, this baby, was he was about two years old and weighed, I think, less than 10 pounds. It's hard to tell, I think, with all of his clothes on. And we admitted him. We tried everything with this kid. We tried IV antibiotics and G-tubes, um, the plumpy nut biscuits, everything. And even though he ate, he, he wasn't gaining weight. We had no way to check and see if he had some you know, malignancy. Or, and then a, a, a doctor came from Australia with clear eyes, and she said, did you, did you think about TB? Did you treat him for TB? And in this land where everybody has TB, none of us had. So we started TB treatment, and this is that baby four months oh, later. Wow. Oh, Isn't that, yeah, so that... Oh, that's beautiful. It is, and so I have to say that, that it's not just the, the plumpy nut and the TB treatment and all of the caregivers who helped him. It's people like you in this room who donate to organizations and help, and people always wonder if they make a difference, and you do, and that baby is proof of it. Um, this is just, I love this picture because it's, we were driving um, down the road in a, a fancy white Land Rover. So you can imagine, we kick up dust, but kids can see us from a distance. And they, it's a big deal. It's in that miserable landscape, and they would chase the cars. And this little kid, the little boy fell and scraped his head, so we stopped to have a look at him. But I love this picture because you see the little girl behind him? Yeah. She's already comforting him. She's already learned how to be a good Afghan woman. Um, which makes me sad, but um, this is one of the tents where we would see patients with the most basic of um, equipment. So I would do an assessment and then write a little prescription that they would take to our little, we had a um, trunk with a little kind of, kind of pharmacy tech, and he would give out the meds that I wanted them to get. This is, as terrible as this looks, um, there's poisonous weeds around the world, and most people who are starving um, don't know when they see weeds in the ground if they're safe to eat or if they're poisonous. Um, and oftentimes, and I've seen it in every place I've worked, in Africa, um, in Iraq, in um, Afghanistan especially, people can have an acute allergic reaction. Um, and most people don't make it to medical care in time because there's no ambulances, there's no 911, there's no fancy cars to get over those crappy roads. Most people don't even have horses. Um, so this lady made it to us, and she literally made it to us right in time because you can see all that swelling. And she was about to lose her airway. Um, but she came to us in time. We were able to give her Benadryl, some steroids, um, and her allergic reaction cleared, and we sent her home the next day. Um, and told her to please tell her neighbors not to eat those weeds. But it really does happen around the world. And I can only imagine when I sit at home and think, oh, God, I want a brownie. Um, well, I shouldn't have it. That I can't imagine that kind of hunger. I've been hungry when I've gone away because I eat what the people in the village eat, um, but never to that extent. So I can't even imagine. And when I'm away, it's always for a limited amount of time. The longest I've gone for is six months. So I've never had to face a lifetime of, of that choice. Do I eat these weeds to fill my belly or starve? Um, this is, we had a little emergency room. This was a victim of a landmine explosion. Um, very sweet boy. His um, parents were killed. A bus rolled over a landmine. Um, it's not just Afghanistan, it's around the world that 
that things are really a mess. We really, I always temper this thing. I used to say we're so lucky here. We are lucky, but we've made our luck, and everybody in this room is part of it. We've worked hard for what we have, um, and we are the most generous nation in the world. Um, <clears throat> the Civil War in the Balkans, I don't know if you remember that. It was the late 90s to the early 2000s. Um, part of it was Croatia, um, and Clinton was president, and he was going to bomb, and then he didn't, and things got worse. The thing about the Balkans, it really was a first world region. They had electricity, running water, high rises, great buildings. Um, and when all of that trouble started, it really wiped out. It's like this area being bombed and strafed and no electricity, no medical care. Um, and I went there in 2001. And you can see it's Sofia, Bulgaria, Romania, Sarajevo. People remember the trouble there. Um, and I was in Skopje in Macedonia, where most of the, the refugees from the region had fled. It was a cold, cold winter. Um, these are the typical villages. And you can see this was a nice area. They had power. The power lines were no good then. Um, I was there in one of the coldest winters. Um, they were starting to fight again when I was there. Um, we provided health. I don't have any pictures of in converted cargo containers. So you know when you see the big trucks on the highways, those cargo containers are what we got for our clinics. And in this bitter cold winter, most people had to wait outside and the others um, crowded inside to get care, to get seen. The best part of the cold was that the worst diseases were prevented, the URIs and the dysentery. Um, so that helped. This is a refugee camp, and these are not even as good as cargo containers. They're really makeshift. Some of them are cardboard. Some of them have little wood pieces of wood, little lean-tos. But they were tiny one-room shelters, and right inside the doorway, you can see the pipes coming up, they had like built-in um, little stoves where they could boil water. And they boiled water all day long because that was how they got their heat as well. Um, after that, I went to Africa. Um, I went to one of the largest refugee camps that still exists. It was opened in 93, and I was supposed to go there in 93, and then fighting broke out um, between the refugees, so they held us back, and I couldn't take more time off from work, so I couldn't go. But I did go there in 2001. It's located in Kenya, and you can see it right here on the coast. And it gets refugees from all those areas, Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, um, Central African Republic, Congo. So it's a really crowded place. When I was there, it was like um, a, a pretty big city. Um, we provided medical care in several areas around the um, camp. This was a waiting area. And you can see how basic everything is. And again, everybody waited quietly. Um, there was never any pushing or fighting. Um, we treated disease the same way we did everywhere else. We had vaccines. We had a little more equipment um, in Africa than I had in other places. We actually had a fairly nice um, hospital. It was in a tent, but we had more equipment. Um, this was the refugee camp clinic there. And as you can see, much like the one in the tent, very basic. That was just a well baby check. That was a healthy baby. Um, these kids are some of the lost boys of Sudan. 
Um, so I was there for a few months, um, and then I was on to Iraq. And we, I'm sure everybody remembers the invasion. So we actually, the Defense Department thought um, <clears throat> that there was going to be a, a health catastrophe unheard of. So we were, um, aid groups were deployed by the Department of Defense to um, Kuwait to wait. And once the soldiers went in, we went in right behind them because the government was that concerned that there would be dire consequences and, and I suppose, terrible press. Um, so we went in, we followed the soldiers in. After, as soon as they went in, we went in. Um, and just like the soldiers, we had um, reporters with us. And we had a New York Times reporter, and we were all like, my car had three people. I was a health person. There was a guy from New York who was um, kind of the head of all of the programs, and he just wanted to see what was going on. And we had a guy who was going to do water and sanitation, because all of that had been wiped out. So it was us three and this reporter. And so none of us wanted to talk to him. Like, I don't, why do I have to talk to him? You talk to him. Um, but he actually turned out to be a great guy, and we became friends. Um, again, we did assessments. When I go in and I'm the first health person, I go in and do, sorry, a health assessment and figure out how, how the village is doing, what kind of clinics did they have there before, what kind of diseases are indigenous to that area, what can we supply. We always use um, WHO, World Health Organization, emergency kits. And each of those kits has enough medicine for whatever region you're in for 10,000 people for three months. So we had medicine. Um, so we were ready to bring it into the country. We just needed to know how much we needed and where we needed to send that. So we went in and um, had a look around. And you can see conditions were really ripe for a health disaster, all this standing water, no running water. Um, it was really a mess. And kids, again, like everywhere. Nothing to do. No school, um, no electricity, home wasn't safe. We followed disease pattern outbreaks, especially for cholera. Um, I'm sure people have heard of Basra, which was the first big city all the soldiers went through. We were afraid there was going to be um, a big outbreak of cholera there. There wasn't, luckily, but we had to go and count numbers and do assessments and check the kids. Um, so I was there for three months. Um, and from there, I was back to Africa, this time to Sudan, to the um, top left, El Fasher in Niala. And that area is called Darfur. And the um, president of Bashir, who's just been ousted, um, had attacked his own people, as he had done previously in the south. Um, he wasn't letting the press in. So word of this really just leaked out in trickles. The UN contacted my, agency, my aid agency, and we got money from Bill Gates to go in and do an assessment. So we went in to have a look and see what we could provide. Um, and this is how things looked when we got there. The refugees were just leaving their villages that the government was bombing. They had no place to go, so they were coming to the capital of North um, El Fasher and, and South. Um, and this is, this is what I've seen every place I've gone, even in Afghanistan. When people first leave their homes, they leave with what they can carry, and they set up these makeshift shelters. And I have to tell you, in 110 or 20 degree heat, this is miserable. And that little bit of fabric doesn't really help much. 
in the way of protecting you from the sun and the heat. Um, so we set up clinics throughout the area. Um, this is, I love this picture because um, this is kind of a Dafur ambulance. She was actually lucky she could come to us this way. She had malaria. We were able to treat her um, and keep her overnight in our clinic. Um, I love this picture because, um, as you can see, this is people who waited, again, hours to see us. And as you can tell, the women are all in front and the men are all in back. And by the time I was in Darfur, I had plenty of balls to say, this is the way I'm doing it. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. <laughs> um, but the men waited. We saw them. Um, this is another malnourished baby. Um, but getting treatment, so that's the big difference of what it was like years ago. Um, these are kids we went to another area that people were just setting up to do an assessment. And I love this picture because the kids are so joyful, and even the bleakest of circumstances, kids always find something, some hope or something to make them find joy. Um, so there's so much to do around the world, um, not just providing health care, but education and food and hope for their futures. And again, I have to say, Americans always step up to the plate, always. Um, and no matter where I've been, the children manage to find joy and hope, and that's in Afghanistan. I lived in a little mud house, and these kids lived next door. And I was like the Pied Piper. They'd follow me every day on my like half a mile walk to the clinic over a rickety old bridge, and they were just great kids. Um, and this is in, the air, in Afghanistan when I was there. And it's such a bleak environment that I, this even excited me, those dyed pink eggs and those balloons. It's such color and such joy. Um, these are the kids in Darfur who would show up at clinic. They lived in a self-contained camp, so it really was okay. But they'd show up um, by themselves, little gangs of little kids um, who wanted to be seen or just sit and talk to us or just sit with us. Um, this is a, a school for boys in Afghanistan. Um, it started out as a tent building. I'm sure that still exists because even the Taliban will let boys go to school. Um, this is a school for girls, and this is the kind of thing that worries me. The Taliban will shut this stuff right down. Um, I yeah, I love that. I think, though, that there's still, there is hope for the future in Afghanistan, and it lies with little girls like her and her. Um, and with all of those children, and with all of us. And this is another waiting area. There will always be people waiting to help. That's a picture of me actually explaining to an older man um, why I wasn't going to see him first, but I would see him. <laughs> um, and Americans always willing to step in. Um, I hope you'll have a look at my book um, and my other books. I have a website that has more information and more pictures. Um, and if, to help around the world, the International Rescue Committee really is the stellar um, aid organization. They go in and do the best work. They do it quietly without the fanfare of press. When I go in with um, IRC, we make sure that we go in with a plan to leave. Some aid groups, as soon as the camera's gone and the big emergency's gone, they just leave. So people who are now used to medical care get nothing. Everybody disappears overnight. IRC always leaves a plan in place, and we find people to stock our clinics and to staff our clinics. Um, and that's it. And if you have any questions, I'd love to. Questions? 
So what were you doing to stay busy? What was I doing there? <laughs> there or here? That was wonderful. Oh, thank you. Um, I have a question on your books and your writing. Do you write in the third person, uh, first person? Is it you that's there? So my memoir is obviously the first person. My first two books were the third person, um, but two other novels that I'm working on are first person. And I have to say, I find that easier. It, easier to say, you know, my stomach had butterflies than to think how to write that in the third person. I think I did it in those books, but I've since discovered that it's easier for me to write in the first person. So I become my character. And my characters are always tall and blonde. And <laughs> <laughs> did you ever get sick yourself while you were there? I did. In Iraq, so in a few places in Iraq, I had an emergency appendectomy. I think Maggie remembers this. But it sounds more dramatic than it yeah, was. Okay. I mean, it was pretty dramatic, but I'm, I didn't die. So, And I actually didn't leave. IRC wanted to um, evacuate me after I had the surgery, a Syrian surgeon. Um, but, you know, I'm a Boston ER nurse, and it was like, it wasn't brain surgery. I'm not, you know, I'm not going home, I'm staying. And I was also the only medical person, so I had to stay. So it was in a full hospital in the city? It was in a hospital, but they're not like hospitals here. And you weren't apprehensive about it? I mean, knowing what Oh, I was, know. but I have to tell you, it hurt like a mother. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. I actually tried to, when I knew what it was, I tried to treat myself because I was the health person with all the equipment. I made myself NPO, which means nothing by mouth, and I just like swallowed antibiotics, thinking I could get the inflammation down. It didn't work. Did you have uh, problems of protecting the medicine and so forth, the people trying to steal it? No, so I had, no, never. Really? Yeah, never. People never tried to steal it. The real problem is that when we would prescribe medicine, people, and people do that here too, I think, people wouldn't take all of it. They would take a little and then save it for another time, like save it for a rainy day, or save it for a spouse or a child who might need it. So, but yeah, people never stole medicine from us or supplies. No black market over there then, huh? No. Did you have much interaction with physicians? When I went in to do the assessment and start up the clinics, no, I was the medical person. What we always tried to do was hire local physicians um, to help staff our clinics and come around with us. But I have to say, the education of foreign physicians is not the same as it is in the U.S. Yeah. Is IRC solely nurses? No, nurses, physicians. Um, when we went to Iraq, a physician and I went as a team. He was a great guy, but he had never been um, like in the field. And after two days, he went home. He was a wonderful guy. He just you have to the the best thing you can bring aside from your expertise and you're willing to help is a sense of humor and just you know you're going to be you're going to be dirty. You're going to um, and it's hard for some people. When you would finish, 
Was six months the longest that you would do? Yeah, that six months is the longest. Because remember when I go away, and, um, no electricity, no bubble baths, no wine. <laughs> six months is my limit. And then you come back and then you work at Boston City? Yep. For a while? Yep, save money so I can save do it again. You get paid as an aid worker, but really peanuts. Mm -hmm. So you have to save your money. I always tell people because of this, and I, you know, it sounds sappy, but it's true, I'll always have to work. But because of this, I really am the richest person I know. Is this how most aid workers uh, who, who happen to be nurses uh, work it so that they work part-time and go part-time? I think, uh, yeah, a, a lot of them do. Mm -hmm. um, some people do it full-time for a few years. I couldn't, really. Good. It's just like six months is, mm -hmm. then give me the wine. It seems to be that I'm always in countries where there isn't any wine. In the refugee camp in Africa, um, there actually was a bar in the expat dining room. The food was crappy, and the bar only sold vodka, which I wouldn't drink on a bed, and a crappy African beer. So <laughs> I suppose I should have, you know, if you're desperate, drink it. But I was like, yeah, I'm not that desperate. And the, the hospital was amenable to, the, to this uh, practice of you coming to work and then going? Yeah, we, because, yeah, we brought supplies. We helped them. The yeah, and, yeah. So it was a part of the hospital's mission to... to well, the hospitals were in the refugee camps. No, but I meant the hospital in the Boston City Hospital. Oh, Boston City. So I, I, you know, sometimes they'd let me go. Sometimes I'd quit and work per diem, because as a nurse, I can always get hours. So. Mm -hmm. So you have that working now. Yep. In the ER. No, actually, now I do the clinics. Oh, okay. um, I do the ER occasionally, but it's I'm too old for that. <laughs> I always said it's the same 200 patients who come in with a gunshot wound or a stab wound just in a different area. So did you treat some of the illnesses that were indigenous to the areas that um, the people migrating back and forth, you know, we, did, we didn't know anything about Ebola or West mm -hmm. virus or the Zika virus um, until people started to really move in and out of, you know, it became more global. And yeah, and those, those um, the borders, especially in Africa, are so fluid. People can sneak back and forth. Yeah, and a, a disease like Ebola really does need to be contained. And I remember a few years ago when that come out came out, um, IRC actually asked me to go, and I was going to go, but my niece um, was having babies, and I had promised her I'd help take care of them because she was having twins. Um, and the, the timeline worked out, but then I had to be quarantined for three weeks when I came back. And every aid worker, despite what you heard on the news, understood that it's part of your contract. You have to be quarantined. You've got to stay in your house, get your test. Um, and I didn't. I had to turn it down because I couldn't do that. And I also thought, even a month later, I'd be worried. What if I? Yeah. I think no, we shouldn't no just problem. we shouldn't pull out. And and even if we were gonna the president shouldn't just be saying that on the news. Um, you should always keep your plan secret. <laughs> even I knew that. Um, no, I don't think that we should just pull out and most Afghans don't want us to just pull out where their safety net. Um, the Taliban are really ruthless. 
ruthless bastards. <coughs> I'm very curious about when you give donations. Um, do you receive all the money? Like with Doctors Without Borders and um, places like So you can check online. I think IRS, the International Rescue Committee, has the best um, thing because you want your money. Part of the reason they don't pay me well is because the money that you donate goes to direct refugee programs and care of patients. I think it's 97 or 8 cents on the dollar that IRC goes to. Um, direct refugee care. And you can check with other aid groups, and it is, it's a little different. But yeah, it is good to know, because you don't want to donate to a group that, like, 50 cents of it goes to, you know, some VP who's going to make a lot of money. Right. I wanted to ask you, um, Roberta, when reading your book, um, what was the worst accommodations that you ever had? I mean, when you describe when you go into a place where you had to sleep, what you had to eat. I think, and so they were all pretty much the same. So the very first time I went, you know, I had this romantic notion that I was going to save the world. I was young, and I'd never even gone camping. Um, but, it, you know, on television, it still looks like, you know, it's still going to be, like, really cool. But I got there, and we were on the border in this... Um, just tents, and the tent that I was in um, had, it was so old, it had what I thought when I first went in was like, you know how your sweater pills up? It looked like that was all over the inside of the tent, and I had a little cot without a sheet and without a sleeping pad, and when I moved, all of the little things moved, so it wasn't just the pilling of the fabric, there was bugs. But even that wasn't so bad. I had um, <laughs> I had bed bugs in Darfur, but I because in my sleeping pad, um, and they were awful the first couple of days, and then it was like we developed an alliance. They got used to me, I got used to them. <laughs> that, that that's the one I remember. <laughs> you get used to it. Oh my god. You gosh. do. I had um, this, this sounds it. Um, in when I was in northern um, Afghanistan in yeah what year it was. Um, I had lice, and I was the, running the clinic by myself and an interpreter and one um, Afghan-like logistics person. And it was a busy clinic. A lot of people came to us every day. And I thought I was helping the local economy, having a local refugee wash my clothes. Um, but they were, there were lice in them. And lice are unmistakable. You get itchy between your fingers and at your waist. And I had actually brought, and I usually did, a bottle of Quell with me. And Quell is the medicine, the lotion that you use to kill lice. But you can only use it once, and I only had enough for one dose. So I had to live with the lice for a couple of months. And then, but even that, if they quiet down, you get used to them. <laughs> no. So that, and that's not always smart, but the reason aid workers don't is because we're supposed to be neutral. Um, and aid, being an aid worker will protect you because we're there to help any side. But the truth of it is aid workers are soft targets. Um, and there's been so many murders in Afghanistan and so many other places of aid workers and kidnappings um, that in places like Afghanistan they've pulled the aid workers back to Kabul. So in places like Bamiyan where I was, there's no aid workers, which is sad. That's the, so again, it's... If you would go without... Male counterpart. Yep, too. yep, and I would walk along the roads by myself. 
No, as an ER nurse at City, I knew how to do stitches and, um, you know, really diagnose and take care of things. Um, we, couldn't, we couldn't do anything about things like diabetes or heart disease. We had no way to confirm a diagnosis like that or any way to treat it. So we treated the basic things and gave out vaccines. A lot of kids in Afghanistan and other places have worms. We'd give them medicine for that. Did your medicine need refrigeration? Um, our vaccines did, and some of our others did. Um, and at our house in um, in Bamiyan, we actually had it was an old horse's stall underneath our house, literally. Um, and we actually kept things down there. It was like a cooling area, just like farmers used to do here in the old days. other questions. Well, thank you for coming. I have books for sale if anyone wants them. And thank you.